you would, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And uh, it is a familiar passage, and, and in many ways you probably could say, well, nothing new here. But the Word of God is always new, always refreshing to us. And this particular subject I'm dealing with is a very precious subject, something that should be precious to all of us, and that is regarding the divinity of Christ. And again, something we should know, but something we need to be reminded of because of who we are, uh, failed human beings that we are, and because of who he is. It's important that we have a true focus on who Christ is and what he should mean to us, how glorious he is in his divinity. So that's the purpose of this message this morning, to help us set aside things that might be distracting us, to even set aside those things that we think we know, and let's focus on who we should know, and that's all about Jesus. It's all about him, who is the Son of God, God, a very God. So, the Gospel of John, as we know, um, focuses more than the other three Gospels on the person of Christ, the deity of Christ, than on the works of Christ. In fact, Matthew Henry put it this way, he, John, gives us more of the mystery of that of which the other evangelists give us only the history. John Calvin made this observation concerning the contrast between the synoptic Gospels and John's Gospel. He said, as, and as all of them had the same object in view to point out Christ, the three former exhibit the body, if we may be permitted to use the expression, but John exhibits his soul. So John in particular focuses on the deity of Christ, although obviously all of them focus on it to some degree, but his focus is on that divinity. Now, earlier in the year, of course, Branch did a survey of John uh, for us as part of his overall study uh, survey of the Bible, so I'm not going to repeat that whole review. But I want to lay a little foundation first to encourage us to read John with perhaps more of an intense interest than we have in the past. It is the gospel which focuses on the divinity of Christ, something which we dare not take for granted nor diminish in its importance in any way. And I'm sure we're all familiar, all of us, and I can think any of us that have been in the faith for a long time, me over 50 years, we probably read the Gospel of John dozens, if not hundreds of times, or portions of it. I know I preached on portions of it, preached through it, and so I'm sure we're all very familiar with it. But there's more to John than John 3.16, okay? There's much more to it than that. So in this particular case, I want us to be encouraged to look at it with a more of an intensity and maybe encouraged to pick it up and read it through again. You know, as you, maybe you haven't read it recently, or maybe you have, but to read it with maybe more of an intensity to look for Christ and to dwell upon him and to worship him as he deserves. So, <clears throat> for instance, this, this gospel is the only gospel that contains a statement of purpose, which is interesting. Of the fourth, contains a statement of purpose. It's found in John chapter 20, in verses 30 and 31, and it states very clearly that these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So its purpose is decidedly evangelistic, obviously, as well as apologetic, and it centers on the person and the work of Christ. As John MacArthur uh, points out in his notes on this gospel, he says, the evangelistic purpose of this gospel is reinforced by the fact that the word believe, the word believe occurs approximately 100 times in this gospel, whereas the synoptics use the term for less than half that much. So obviously, if we're to be saved from the consequences of our sins, we must believe that he was, is, and ever shall be God, a very God who alone could pay for our sins. 
So it's important we focus on that. We know that. We come to a Baptist church here, uh, a Reformed Baptist church that preaches the gospel. But again, we need to be reminded. We need to focus intently upon him and who he is and what he's done for us. Not just, in a sense, take it for granted or because we are Christians, therefore we know that. No, let's go back and really focus upon him and what he's done for us and why we should be uh, rejoicing and in awe of the divinity of Christ. Now, on the apologetic side of things, John wrote this book to convince readers, who were probably predominantly Jews and proselytes, that Jesus truly was the incarnate Son of God, that his divine and human natures were perfectly united in one person, and that this person was the prophesied Christ, the Savior of the world. As D.A. Carson points out in his commentary, the plot, he calls it, the plot of John's gospel is very, quote, very tight and is tied finally to the hour, the purpose, God, and the crucial redemption event of all Christian witness, the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ, and the urgency of true faith in the wake of that event. So that's the hour. God's focusing in this word in the gospel of John on what Christ came to do, who he was, and what impact that has on us. Many scholars believe that John supplies us with material that's not found in the other Gospels, and indeed he gives us information that helps us understand better some of the events in the synoptics. For instance, as John MacArthur points out again, while the synoptics begin with Jesus' ministry in Galilee, they imply that Jesus had a ministry prior to that, and we we see that uh, mentioned in Matthew 4.12 and Mark 1.14. There's an implication that he had more of a ministry than there was in Galilee. And John supplies the answer with the information of Jesus' prior ministry in Judea in his chapter 3 and Samaria in chapter 4. He also seems to build or construct his gospel around eight signs or proofs that reinforce Jesus' identity as a son of God. And six of these signs are unique uniquely uh, put forth in his gospel. In addition, his gospel contains the seven and very emphatic I am statements, which I listed up here, the text found in John 6.35, 8.12, chapter 10, a couple portions, chapter 11, chapter 14, chapter 15. Those are all the I am statements, so they're found uniquely in John's gospel. And like Mark, John doesn't record the birth of Christ, nor does he cover the transfiguration of Jesus on the mount, or the Lord's Supper, although he does deal with the background for the Lord's Supper. John's theme is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, and the fact that truth should stir our souls because he came as a God-man to save our souls. So that's what we want to focus on, upon Christ as the divine one. In fact, let's read now. We'll get into a breakdown of it in just a moment, but let's read that whole section, verses 1 through 18 of John's Gospel, this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. And as I read it, it's a familiar portion again, I'd like you to think and contemplate on the, on the import, the significance of these words and how it's written by John, in fact. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light. 
but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. May God bless the reading of his word. Powerful portion of scripture. One, again, I would recommend you read over and over, meditate upon, think about, pray over, and be refreshed as we think about this person of Christ. So, first of all, let's look, we're going to break this down into kind of three portions here, these first 18 verses. First, let's look at the pre-incarnate Christ as it's described in verses 1 through 5. In fact, if we backing up here just a little bit, we look at the Gospel of John, it begins with what we call this prologue. Okay, it's a prologue, verses 1 through 18. It's unique in that sense that it's, uh, when we compare it to the other Gospels, they don't have this prologue. Why a prologue? Well, most scholars believe that it has to do with John's overall goal of identifying Christ as the true Son of God. Now, several of the key themes that are found throughout his Gospel are found here in this prologue. For instance, life. We see that in some of these other verses, life, light, witness, glory, and truth, etc. Thus, it is a powerful portion of God's word which no one should, should think lightly of, and it should demand our attention at all times. As R.C. Sproul stated in his commentary, no portion of the New Testament captured the imagination and the intention of the Christian intellectual community for the first three centuries more than this brief action or section of John's Gospel. This prologue sets forth a story foundation for the narrative that follows. And indeed, F.F. Bruce in his commentary made this observation. The narrative as a whole spells out the message of the prologue. So if you know the prologue, you have a sense of what's being going to be said in the rest of the Gospel. He also goes on to say that in the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, the glory of God was uniquely and perfectly disclosed. So let's begin our study here of Christ's divinity with reading and kind of spiritually digesting, if it would. Go back and let's read the first five verses again, okay, and and focus on that here. I think most of your Bibles probably have a little paragraph break of those five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. I'm sorry, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. First phrase that we see here, which should sound very familiar if you're a student of the word, the first phrase takes us all the way back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. 
And it's echoed, actually, interestingly, it's echoed in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. Okay, that thought in the beginning. Here we have it, Genesis, John's Gospel, and John's Epistle. Jesus was no mere itinerant teacher or rabbi. John's saying, but he is the word of God. He is God. Not only that, but he was God before, during, and after creation. Uh, in John chapter 1, I'm sorry, John chapter 17, verse 5, he goes, John goes on to say, and now, Jesus, he's quoting Jesus here, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He was the Son of God. He was the glorious Son of God. He was God, a very God, before the world was. He was after it, and he continues to be God himself. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary, said this, In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, introduces the story of the old creation. Okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here, in John chapter 1, verse 1, it introduces the story of the new creation. In both works of creation, the agent is the word of God. Think about that. The agent in the first creation, and now here in the second creation, is the word of God. The term word had meaning to both Greeks and Jews. The Greek philosophy, in Greek philosophy, the word signified the impersonal, rational principle of divine reason or mind or even wisdom. That's from the Greek point of view. Thus, the word denoted God in action, okay? Especially in creation, revelation, and in deliverance, per F.F. Bruce. This magnificent opening line is no mere poetry or worshipful thought, but it helps us Focus or visualize Christ in eternity, one with the Father, enjoying blessed, serene fellowship in the Godhead. He was one with the Father. He was there enjoying perfect fellowship, which when you think about that, again, think about where he was, what God was doing, and now now he has come down into earth and caused himself to be humbled to the point of becoming a human being and enduring what he endured. Think about the contrast between the perfect fellowship he had with the Father before creation, the eternal bliss that they enjoyed as the Trinity, and yet he stepped down from that temporarily, obviously, to come here to die for our sins, according to the Scriptures. William Hendrickson so aptly put it this way, once this truth is grasped, the condescending love of Christ in becoming flesh will be appreciated more fully. You see, beloved, when we grasp who Christ really is, which is what John is seeking to express here in this, in this opening prologue, that the, Jesus, the Messiah, was fully and completely, completely God. We're told in, in Colossians 2.9, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the fullness, nothing lacking. He was God, a very God, and he was perfect man, of course, as we know. If that's true and we understand that, we grasp that truth, then we should be in awe of what he condescended to do for sinners like us. What a condescension that the perfect, glorious, magnificent, beyond description, God, a very God, second person of the Trinity, would stoop down to even look upon mankind, let alone become man and endure what he endured for our sins. So as we see in verse 3 here of our text, John asserts that Jesus Christ was not just hanging out with God in eternity, but he was the very agent of creation. Verse 3, 
All things were made through him, and without him nothing, nothing was made that was made. Tells us two truths. There's two truths here. One, that Jesus himself was not created, but rather always was, eternally was. And second, that all things, without exception, were made by him. That, of course, flies in the face of our evolutionary friends. In other words, as R.C. Sproul put it, John is saying here, the one that I'm going to tell you about, the one in whom there is life, the one in whom I want you to believe is the one who created you in the first place. And that's another humbling thought. We sometimes forget that. We think in terms of, oh, you know, I'm a member of such and such family, and I have this lineage going back. Stop for a moment. You exist because God created you. Not because you had a great family or your mother and father were, you know, healthy and you are, you exist because God designed you specifically to be who you are and put you on this earth. We need to keep that in mind. Sometimes we kind of take that for granted that, oh yeah, you know, generations going back. No, God specifically designed you. You would not exist if he did not choose to create you. Always keep that in mind that you owe him your very existence. In doing so, we see immediately the debt that we owe to him as our creator, let alone as the one whom we look, must look to for our redeemer. In verses 4 and 5 of our text, John introduces his reader to some of the major themes in the whole gospel. He describes the word as having life, and this life was the light of men. Both in this gospel and in his first epistle, John uses the Greek word life 54 times, Far more than any other New Testament book uses that term life. Indeed, when a person possesses this life, as we know, eternal life, John 17.3 tells us that he or she is in a close fellowship, is in a tight relationship, is a child of God through faith in Christ. The relationship between God and the Word in the prologue is the same as the relationship between the Father and the Son throughout the rest of the Gospel. D.A. Carson points out both John 1.4 and John 5.26 insist that the Word, or the Son, shares in the self-existing life of God. No question, this is God. He always has been God. He always will be God. There's no, he became, or, you know, no, he always was God. In these particular portions, John 1, 4, and 5, 26, John is insisting that we understand that this Son, this Word, is the self-existing life of God. Also, in verse 5, we have the contrast between light and darkness a duality that dominates really much of the rest of the Gospel of John, if you read through. In the last phrase of verse 4, there's kind of a hint in the Greek of the fall of man, and therefore the life is manifested in giving light to fallen men. As William Hendrickson points out, there's a change in the Greek word that we translate as light from the imperfect to the present tense. Not only was the light shining, to illumine every man, as we see in verse 9, but it is still shining because Jesus, being God, cannot change, thus his light cannot diminish. He cannot diminish. Not only that, but since the word, Christ, is the one in whom this life resides and by whom it is caused to shine forth as light, he, the word, is also himself called the light. We say that in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 8. Which says, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because 
The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Jesus is the true light and he is always shining. He will continue to be shining. In fact, a better translation of the last phrase in verse 5 is that the darkness did not comprehend it. Did not comprehend it. The idea here is that the darkness, the darkness of evil in man's heart, cannot grasp light or truth because such things are anathema to it. That's why natural man cannot understand who God is and why he needs to be redeemed. People love darkness because their deeds are evil, we're told in John 3.19. Thus they see no value in light, nor can they comprehend or understand it. This parallel is brought out later in, in John 1.10 and 1.11. We'll get there in a little bit. Other scholars point out that the Greek word kataleban could also mean overcome or possess. Okay, as you comprehend or overcome or possess. And as F.F. Bruce points out, the context would then suggest, if you take that point of view that it means overcome, that if approached from that point of view, that the prologue does not deal with the incarnation or the saving revelation of the word until verse 14. So there's a little different point of view. But Matthew Henry, Calvin, Carson, Hendrickson, and others take the first point of view that the word means to comprehend while Bruce and MacArthur and a few others take the meaning to overcome. Now, each has its merits, but I think John's thought might be more in line with Paul's in 1 Corinthians 2.14 when Paul says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Thus, to me, comprehend would be the best translation of the word there in John 1.5. Indeed, when you think about it, How can fallen man, whose mind has been twisted by sin, comprehend a perfect, holy, sinless, eternal, divine being like Jesus Christ? Really, you know, think about that. That shows how fallen we are, that we cannot comprehend him. We cannot understand who he really is, unless, of course, the Holy Spirit quickens us, reveals to us who we are and and who he is. So fallen man cannot comprehend who Jesus is, unless it is revealed to them by the Spirit of God. So that's the pre-incarnate Christ described here in the first five verses. Let's move on now to a second grouping, I guess you might call it, verses 6 to 13, which speaks of the divinity of Christ on earth. Okay, He was pre-incarnate. John's describing him as the pre-incarnate God, the perfect God. This next group of verses will see John speaking of him and revealing his divinity on earth. Let's, read, let's start with verses 6 through 9. Read those again first. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Stop there for just a moment. John the Baptist, in these three verses, John the Baptist verifies that he came not to be the light, but to eventually bear witness that Jesus was that true light, the divine light, which signified his divinity. Psalm 36, 9 says, in thy light we see light. Without his light we would be living in darkness, we would have no hope, but in his light we see light in Genesis we, are to, Genesis, we are told that God said, said to uh, the angel Gabriel, Gabriel, switch that, that switch and we'll get some light. 
He didn't say that, did he? He didn't say, well, give me some material here and I'll, I'll come up with some light. What did he say? Let there be light. He spoke it into existence because he is God. He spoke it and there was light. God is the source of light, pure, holy light, or divine revelation. Jesus came and the people who walked in darkness have seen what? A great light, Isaiah 9.2. Indeed, Isaiah goes on to declare God the Father's decree in Isaiah 49, verse 6, that I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. God gave Christ as a light to the Gentiles. So God is light himself. He gives light to us in the person of Jesus Christ. God is light. He sends Christ as the light, thus confirming that Jesus is equal with the Father. They are both light. Better translation of verse 9 here in the Greek would be, the true light which illumines every man was in the act of coming into the world. The true light which illumines every man was the act was in the act of coming into the world. So he's speaking, John's here speaking of him coming. And in that situation, the salvation, the Father's salvation, is found only in Christ. And John the Apostle here is attempting, in verse 9, to show the distinction between Christ and all other lights. In fact, John Calvin summed it up this way. The distinction is that whatever is luminous in heaven and in earth borrows its splendor from some other object. But Christ is the light, shining from itself and by itself and enlightening the whole world by its radiance so that no other source or cause of splendor is anywhere to be found. He is the light of the world. Now the phrase, he illumines every man, does not mean that everyone is given the full spiritual illumination. Or as Hendrickson put it, Christ imparts a degree of understanding concerning spiritual matters, not necessarily resulting in salvation, to all those whose ears and minds are reached by the message of salvation. The majority, however, do not respond favorably. Many who have the light prefer the darkness. Some, however, do entirely to the sovereign, saving grace of God, receive the word with the proper attitude of heart and mind, and obtain everlasting light. So, as we know, and, and in fact, even the illustration there of the, of the parable of the seeds, we see that the seed is scattered, the word of God is scattered, and some rejoice when they first hear it, right? They, a little bit of light has come to them. But ultimately, they reject it, okay? When the troubles and, and trials of the world come upon them or when they're distracted by things other than the light. So there's a sense in which many men, as we well know, hear the light, see the light, but it doesn't quite pierce through their total darkness because they're too fallen in sin and the Spirit of God has not quickened them to grasp that light. So they just look at it and it, perhaps it dazzles them for a moment, but it does not bring saving faith to them. But those to whom God has chosen in Christ before the world began, those have been moved by the Spirit of God to not only see the light, but to believe in the light, believe in Jesus, who is that light, and, be, and have everlasting life. And that's the clear message that's really given here in the New Testament. Paul, for instance, proclaims the necessity of faith in the person of Christ and in his bloody atonement. He is the light. Just some verses you can look up later regarding the importance of Christ and why he had to be the light and why he is the only one who can provide atonement. Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 22 through 25. I was going to put those on the board, but didn't have time. Galatians 2, 16 and Galatians 2, 20. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 22 and verse 26. And Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5, and there's many more, but... 
Paul takes that message that John is bringing here and, and obviously emphasizes the importance of Christ being the only person who could save us from our sins. Let's, let's read here verses 10 through 13 of this middle section as we're studying it. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right or the authority to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now this speaks, obviously, of the incarnation of Christ. But more specifically, John the Baptist was pointing to the man, Christ Jesus, who was about to enter into his public ministry during John's lifetime, obviously John the Baptist's lifetime, And in verse 10, the apostle summarizes the reaction to Christ coming into the world. We note, first of all, the apostle's use use of the Greek word cosmos, which literally is translated world here. He came into the world. It's used 185 times in the New Testament. John uses it 78 times in this gospel and another 24 times in his epistles and in Revelation. He gives it various shades of meaning depending on the context. But here in verse 10, it speaks of the realm of mankind, which, though it was created by him, nevertheless failed to recognize him as its creator. That's the first thing. Mankind fails to recognize Christ as the creator, let alone as as redeemer. Jesus refers to this fact in John 3, 19, where he says, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. Of course, he's speaking there of himself. He is the light that came into the world, but men love darkness because their deeds are evil. They did not recognize it, did not delight in that light. They rather rejected it. And as we know from the Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. Therefore, man is without excuse not to recognize their creator, the light of the world, when he came into it. Calvin put it this way, Never was Christ in such a manner absent from the world, but that men, aroused by his rays, ought to have raised their eyes towards him. Hence it follows that the blame must be imputed to themselves. So, in other words, there's no excuse for mankind observing the glories of creation. There's no excuse for mankind witnessing the coming of Christ in the world to say, well, we didn't recognize it, we didn't know it was him. No, he manifested himself by his very life, by his very light that he brought to the world. And his creation testifies of his creative power and might. There's no excuse for mankind to say, well, we didn't recognize, we didn't know he was a creator. We didn't know we were created, in fact. Verse uh, 11 narrows the focus down to the Jews, of course. Jesus' own people, or people according to the flesh, Israel was, a true, in a true sense, God's own possession, as we're told from the Old Testament. Yet the word, God in the flesh, was rejected by his own people. They received him not. And this tragedy is best portrayed by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Why don't you turn there with me? Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 speaks of the tragedy of the people of God not recognizing their Messiah when he came. Isaiah chapter 1. Verses 2 and 3. This is a powerful rebuke, I guess you might say, by Isaiah here of the people of Israel. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. 
I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider or understand. Think about that. Look at the, the insult he's basically giving to them. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel, my people, do not know. They do not consider who their God is. Quite a rebuke. Even the animals know their, know their owners. In fact, the animals, I'm sure, in a sense that we don't understand, know their creator. But Israel, God's people, who he redeemed from Egypt, and again sent a Messiah to redeem them from their sins, they don't recognize him. They don't know him. Now, while the statements in verses 10 and 11 are somewhat grim or foreboding, as we can see, that he came into the world, they didn't know him, they didn't understand him, but they're softened, they're softened by verses 12 and 13, which tell us that not all, obviously, reject him. Indeed, there's a remnant who, by God's grace, appropriate, appropriate, acknowledge, and welcome the light. And, of course, those are those whom God has chosen in Christ before the world began. In these, he, the word of God, came, comes in the flesh, and he gave. It's every gift of God's sovereign grace, isn't it? It's not like we took. He gave. He gave the light, or the right, or the authority, become the children of God. It's a gift of God. Not something we purchase, not something we deserve, not something we saw on a shelf and picked up. No, it's a gift from God, gift of his grace. The Jews boasted of their hereditary rights, and referred to themselves as the children of Abraham. But believers receive the actual authority or right to be called not just the spiritual children of Abraham, but the children of God. Now, of course, though we are now the children of God, through faith in Christ, we have not yet fully realized what this means, but we shall. Turn back to a familiar passage, I'm sure you can recall, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. In fact, you probably should know, we'll look at verse 2, but... How many recognize 1 John 3, 1? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God. In fact, there's a chorus about that. So are you singing? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the sons of God that we should be called the sons of God. And even though that's true, as it says, the world does not know us. The world does not understand us, that we are the children of God, because we are as imperfect in that sense as they are, but we're redeemed not because we're perfect, not because we're holy. We're made holy, obviously, by the work of Christ in us. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world did not recognize Christ, Therefore, it does not recognize us as being any different from them. Even though we are, we're redeemed, we're saved by God's grace. Verse 2, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's a glorious thought, isn't it? A glorious hope that we have in that passage of 1 John. And note, beloved, if we have this hope, if we're trusting in the living word of God, the true light that came into the world, then this hope should, what? Purify us, even as he is pure. You should be purified 
by that blessed hope that you have in Christ. It should make you more like him in all things. Now finally, as we look at this section, John concludes these qualifications by clearly telling us in verse 13 that those who became children of God did not inherit it via blood relation, nor is there any who became children of God through carnal desire or the will of the flesh, nor via the will of man, which in the Greek actually is the procreative urge of the male, which is that literal sense, what the Greek is saying. As Hendrickson summed it up, he said, all three emphasize that in no sense whatsoever do believers derive their birth or standing from physical or biological causes. The Lord made that very clear to Nicodemus, didn't he? In John 3, 6, you must be born again. No other options, no other choices. You must be born again. Let's move on then to uh, the last section of this prologue found in verses 14 through 18. We'll call this the glory of Christ's divinity, the glory of his divinity. In the midst of an ungrateful world, he, the word, manifests his great everlasting love by willingly descending into this world of sin and misery to dwell with man, to die for man, to reconcile those whom he died for to the Father. Let's read verses 14 through 18 again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The glory of the Word, the Son of God, at the incarnation is the theme here of these verses. And this, beloved, is really a most profound and amazing truth. As MacArthur put it, the infinite became finite. The eternal was conformed to time. The invisible became visible. And the supernatural one reduced himself to the natural. Let me read that again. Then think about it. Again, the condescension of Christ. The infinite became finite. The eternal was conformed to time. Invisible, the invisible became visible. And the supernatural one reduced himself to the natural. He did not cease to become God, but he became God in the form of human flesh to dwell among us, to be tempted in all things such as we are yet without sin, as we're told in Hebrews 4.15. And John and the other apostles beheld Christ's glory in his signs and in his death and resurrection. As John says here in verse 14, that glory was worthy of one who was the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. Now, of course, the three apostles saw his glory manifested wondrously on that Mount of Transfiguration, as we're told in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. He was full, not Partially full, but he was totally full of truth and grace. He was the epitome of truth and grace. Many scholars believe that John was directing his readers to Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18, where Moses pleads with God to show him God's glory. And God replied, didn't he, to Moses? In fact, let's flip back real quick to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, because it's a glorious picture of God describing himself to Moses. Exodus 34 And verses 5 through 7. 
Exodus 34, 5 through 7. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And verse 8 goes on to say that Moses bowed down before him. In that scene there in Exodus, you can almost get the idea that Moses saw God, but he didn't really because before when he asked to see God, God said, you can't see me face to face, but you can see my hinder parts. So he saw the glory of God as God trailed before him, uh, in front of him. So he didn't really see God face to face, even though it's spoken of in a in the Hebrew text, it speaks of him seeing God face to face. He literally could not do that or he would have been destroyed. So he saw God in his backward parts in that picture there. Going back to our text in John chapter 1, verse 15, John the Baptist's testimony backs up or corroborates John the Apostle's statement regarding the truth that the Word, the incarnate God, was eternally God. He was eternally God. In fact, Colossians 1.17, Paul says, And he is before all things, and in them all things consist. There's that repeated thought throughout the scriptures that Jesus is the creator of all things. And interestingly, because it speaks of the Holy Spirit being there at creation, brooding over the earth, so all three members of the Trinity were there at creation. In this particular text, it's speaking of Christ being the creator, uh, but in that sense, all three were involved in creation. John the Apostle then returns to his thoughts of verse 14 in, verse, in verses, in, when, he, when we look at verses 16 and 17, he's kind of going back to his thoughts in verse 14, when he tells us that the fullness of Christ has been given to all believers, and he has tasted of it. John himself has tasted of it. We are given grace upon grace upon grace in the sense of the text there in verse 16. One sense of the grace of God is hardly gone when another one arrives. Like an ever-flowing fountain, we are constantly bathed in the abundant, saving grace of God. And that's something to picture. It's not that God gave us grace to believe and then he, stepped, he walked away and said, okay, it's all yours, you can handle it now, you're saved, no problem. No, he's constantly giving us his grace, daily grace, to live for him, to overthrow the temptations of Satan, to glorify his name. There's that constant flow of grace that speaks of God's constant care for his people. He loved us with an everlasting love. It didn't stop when Jesus died on the cross. It didn't stop when he brought us to repentance and faith. It's a continuous loving grace that he pours out upon us. And that's something to be comforted in. Even when you're faced with trials, even when things aren't going the way you want it to be, God's grace is there continually for you to sustain you, to guide you, to help you, to endure to the glory of God. It's a grace that covers all our sins, a grace that continues to cover all our sins. Now, to a potential objection here, John's responding to a potential objection from the Jews. John states that the law was not a means of grace, but rather a means by which man's lost condition was and is revealed. And we know that's to be true. The law was given. It was good, but it could not impart grace so that the transactions or the transgressors could be pardoned. That came through Jesus Christ. And the law dealt with types and shadows, didn't it? A a kind of a, you could say, a partial truth, whereas Christ was the fulfillment of these shadows, the reality, the whole truth. Thus, if you know the truth, the truth being Christ, of course, 
you will be set free from your sins and death, which is what the law brought upon us. And John tells us that in John 8.32. Now lastly, John concludes this beautiful prologue with a profound statement there in verse 18. Let me read verse 18 again. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him or revealed him in that sense. Moses may have spoken to God, but he did not he did not get to know God in all his fullness. He did not see God face to face. The only begotten Son, the Word who became flesh, he has both seen and know the Father in all his fullness, and he has shown us what he is like. For he and the Father are one. Remember what Jesus told Philip in John 4, 14, verse 9, when the disciple asked, the, asked Jesus, uh, show us the Father, it will be sufficient for us. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you want to know what God the Father is like, you have but to know his Son, Jesus Christ, and you will know the one true God in all of his fullness. And if you know who Jesus Christ is, if you appreciate the fact that he was not just a gloriously perfect human being, but he was the divine Son of God, his divinity is insignificant to us because he could not redeem us if he was not God, a very God. He could not bring us into a reconciled condition with the Father unless he was the divine Son of God. So his divinity is very significant. And like I said, I would encourage you to go back through and read not only this prologue, again, maybe meditate upon it, pray over it, seek to get closer to Christ and understanding his value, his glory, his majesty, who he is. But read through the whole Gospel of John with that attitude of show me Christ. Show me Christ. Ask the Holy Spirit to make Christ more and more precious to you, more important to you, more significant in your life, more, more a part of your, your thoughts, your desires, your prayers, your goals. Look to Christ and be refreshed in your souls. Okay? Let's pray.